0: Let's pray. And uh, Did I send the kids out? Did I do that? Yeah, okay, good. Let's, Father, we just thank you as we approach your word. We ask you to help us to uh, take it into our hearts and understand uh, exactly what Jesus is doing in this wonderful text today. And we pray for your guidance and wisdom always. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 15. And just by way of introduction, I, I, We live in a pretty interesting time, and I kind of, I mean, I'm grieved by it, but I kind of like it. Uh, You know, we live in a a, a weird part of the arc of civilizations. You know, civilizations rise, and then they rule for a while, and then then they fall, and we're definitely on the downside of the arc with regard to that. Um, I was thinking about coins, and uh, I've got a quarter in my hand. Luckily, my wife had one on her, and uh, (laughs) it's got three things it says on here. It says, e pluribus unum, and uh, out of many, one. And it says, in God we trust, right there. And it says, liberty. And those are sort of the foundation principles of American civilization. Right on a coin, all the all three of those things. They declare what we're about and what we're striving for as a people. And I think it's, a, it's pretty fair to say there's a concerted effort to tear down each one of those three things um, in our culture. And build something completely different on a very different basis than those things. So those are kind of the fault lines of the cultural battles, which spills over into the political battles that go on in the world. And it's not my job to speak politically from the pulpit. I don't do that. But I I admit I'm rather fond of those three things on here. (laughs) I I just got to confess, I think that's the best way um, sinful man can uh, govern himself, by living by those principles. Liberty most of all, because when that's gone... Um, everything else is gone and the human spirit is crushed and things always go bad when liberty's gone. But nowhere do we see the attack on liberty more in our day, I think, than the political correctness thing in terms of speech. That they're trying to outlaw speech and truth. And um, it's kind of an amazing thing. Labeling people you just disagree with about something as hateful and then trying to create an, a cultural atmosphere where people that disagree with you about human sexuality or other things like that are, are literally targeted as haters. And then very large corporations are targeting people that disagree with that sort of politically correct view as, as hateful people, so hateful, so evil that they need to be suppressed. And that's kind of scary when a civilization gets like that. So you can tell when a civilization's on its last legs when... Many people in it, especially people of great power, don't believe in what it was based on anymore. That's when, they, that's when this slide really kind of happens. And so this thing they call political correctness, you know, it's, um, it's kind of disturbing. I, I just read this week that in New Jersey they're trying to outlaw Huckleberry Finn from the schools. You know, like, how wicked is that book, you know? And it's like... Um, And many many university professors and colleges now offer trigger warnings when they're going to assign some literature that might in some way disturb the peace of someone's well-being, you know? So they there's got a trigger warning about Sometimes they'll just not use traditional material, but they offer trigger warnings about that. So you can be aware that you might be, like, upset and have to go to the safe room or something and that kind of thing. So in the spirit of the age... I'm offering you a trigger warning about today's text in Matthew's gospel. If you are Syrophoenician or um, identify as Syrophoenician perhaps... You may want to absent yourself. This is a good time to kind of slip out. You might come help in the nursery or be the parking lot monitor. We don't have a parking lot monitor, but if you'd like to be that, that would be fine. Just uh, go out there and make sure our cars are safe. But I have to say that because this is so politically incorrect on Jesus' part that he would definitely be sent to some sort of sensitivity training seminar if he was in a college today. So... um, not good. He'd be banned from a campus. I, I, I mean it. I mean, he really would. Uh, so what he does here, it's, it's just not okay. It's not okay. It, it could hurt someone's feelings terribly. So um, let's look at the story. We're in Matthew chapter 15. And this is the story that follows closely in time the incidents we've been looking at the past several weeks and months here um, around the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples never really got their vacation vacation. And so, Jesus decides to take them further away than they've ever been, and really outside the borders of Israel. It's pretty interesting. So, um, if you look at verse uh, 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. So, Tyre and Sidon themselves are outside the borders of Israel, and... um, Today, that would be Lebanon, what we would call Lebanon. It was called that in the ancient world, too. But it's north of Israel, along the coastal region there. So, Tyre and Sidon. That's where he's taken them. That's kind of... I'm sure there were a lot of Jews living there, but it's, it's outside Israel. It's sort of pagan land, you know? So, they're going there to rest, um, get a little refreshment. Mark's gospel says in Mark chapter 7, verse 24, telling the same story. He says, when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. See, that's That's finding peace, seeking peace, right? Just a little bit of a break. Yet he could not escape notice, Mark says. So everybody knew. I mean, his fame had already extended well beyond the borders of Israel. He wanted to avoid interruptions for a time, help his men get some rest, but that was impossible. Word got around really quick that he was in the area. And it's very likely that more than one person came to him or approached him, but the story is going to focus on one person in particular, And there's only one recorded miracle with regard to this whole situation here. But this is a really fascinating encounter, and it's only one of two times, there's only twice in the whole gospel narratives of all the four gospels where Jesus commends somebody for having great faith. There's many times, even especially his own disciples, where he says, you have little faith, right? But there's only twice where he commends somebody for having great faith faith, and this is one of those times, we're, we're getting there. So um, it's one of the most interesting stories in all the Gospels, maybe controversial, you could say, because Jesus' behavior is so surprising, and I think for a lot of people, it sort of seems out of character, as, as you might say, and yet, um, it's, it's, uh, it's very wonderful. But over over and again in the Gospels, we see Christ with the heart of compassion, moved with compassion, always ready, this unflagging love for people, always ready to meet a need, even in circumstances which are very inconvenient for him. But this one's different, and that's what makes it most intriguing. So here's what happens. Verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. So she's a desperate person. So she shows up and continually calls out to Jesus to help her, apparently from a distance at first, but then um, pursuing him. And if he's in a house, if he's still in the house when she comes along, you can kind of picture her outside calling to him, calling to him. The, the verbs in verse 22 are, imply she's ongoing with this thing, and we find out in the story itself, it's she goes on and on, on and on, calling for him. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And it is Mark, who Mark's gospel, that identifies her more specifically as a Syrophoenician woman, a descendant. The, the, the Phoenicians were the people that Really ancient Greeks, I mean, well before the Greek classical period, they would, they would colonize around and they colonized um, that area and they invented the alphabet. So, you know, what we call the alphabet, um, that was their invention. So she comes from an ancient and great people that ended up in that part of the uh, world. Well, but, but those days when those people came, even in Jesus' time, that was ancient history when those people first settled there. But she's a descendant of those people. So she's a Syro, Syrian, and Phoenician. She's a descendant of the the Phoenician peoples. Um, They go back a long way, and they were idolaters. But notice what she calls Jesus. She calls him Lord, and she calls him the son of David. And son of David is a Jewish term for the Messiah. So we don't know anything about her past, her interaction with Jews in her life, or maybe people that lived near her or whatever. But somewhere she must have heard about Jesus in messianic Jewish terms. Somebody must have said to her at some point along the line, this could be the Messiah, the son of David. And so she knew about that. She calls him that. She addresses him as the Messiah. So, so far, so good for her. She's respectful but agonizing and earnestly seeking a response for him. But here's the thing that's so shocking. It's, it's Jesus' response. It's, it's surprising he doesn't respond. So verse 23 says he did not answer her A word. And the verb describing her pleadings, like I said, it implies that she's continuously imploring and calling out to him. So it's not just one-shot deal, but he doesn't answer. It's so uncharacteristic of him. He always seems ready to stop for the most insignificant person and, and minister to them and meet their needs. So why this strange silence in her particular case? Why he's kind of shunning her? So why is that? What's going on? Well, you know, whenever you have a question like that, you want to think, well, what are the possibilities? Well, maybe he doesn't work on vacations. That could be one. But that's actually not the case. We know because previously in Matthew's gospel, when they were on vacation, they were trying to get away, and the crowds followed him around, what did he do? He felt compassion for the multitude and took the guys and ministered to them all day long. You remember that? And then sent him off in the, his disciples off in the boat and he went off to pray. So usually he, it doesn't matter what he's doing. He turns and has compassion on people. So it's not that. So maybe he just doesn't want to be bothered. Well, that's not it because she's being a much bigger bother, yelling outside the house or following him around than... Uh, if he just sent her away, right? That's what we see in verse 23. His disciples came and implored him, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. So that tells you how long this has been going on and how annoying it is. And like, just imagine somebody just calling out to you. In fact, worse, calling out to somebody sitting there that's not you and you're waiting for them to do something, you know? They're not responding and you've got to sit there and listen to her yelling, out all this stuff all the time so send her away either heal her and send her away heal her daughter and send her away or just send her away period you know just get rid of her because it's driving us nuts that's a polite hebraic expression nuts Um, but the big bother here for them is the silence of jesus it's like a huge intrusion for everybody so he's just letting her go on so you know if if you don't want to help her send her packing it's okay with us so the quickest solution, of course, would be simply to heal her um, daughter and end it, right? So, but he doesn't speak, so why is he not speaking? Maybe he doesn't like her. Maybe he doesn't like her people. But no, that if that was it, he could have sent her away with that. You know, I don't want to have anything to do with you, you know, because I don't like you or... I don't like Syrophoenicians or something like that. But so he doesn't speak at all. He doesn't say a word. So why the silence? But if we look at um, right after that there, um, we see what Jesus said. And he does finally offer an explanation to the disciples. And this is really interesting. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There is an expressed reason he's not answering her. He's on a limited mission. She's a Gentile. God sent the Son to offer the kingdom to Israel. And there will be a time for Gentiles to be included, but not yet. And that's perfectly in accord with Jesus' instruction to his own disciples. Back in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, where he sent them out and he said, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So even the same language is used in Matthew chapter 10, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's his mission. Those are the people he's going to. So he's sticking to his narrow mission. I was sent only, he says. So think about those four words. I was sent only only that's a direct commission he has from the father and he always obeys the father the highest good to Jesus is doing exactly what God wants you to do in fact in John chapter 4 verse 34 remember he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well that whole scenario there he told the disciples that in that chapter he said my food is to do the will of him who sent me you know like when you hunger for something and you want to have it he hungers to do God's will that's that's what drives him And God sent him to proclaim the kingdom and offer it to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's his job. So he's focused on that job. So God's work is to be focused on Israel at this key moment, just like in the days of the Exodus, you know. um, Lots of Egyptian slaves were not freed from Egypt. Only the Jews were taken out of Egypt. People could go along with them. Some did, but... um, Right now, in this context, the mission is to Israel. It's not going to always be that way. When you get to the end of the gospel, what does Jesus tell the apostles to do? Go, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's what we call the Great Commission. That's why we do go. But on this day, this Syrophoenician woman is outside the scope of his mission, and he never preached outside Israel's borders because he's focused on what God told him to do. Now, this is where the modern mind starts moving into the area of political correctness, which claims to be about inclusion and diversity. Because here Jesus is saying, God sent me to this group, but not to this group, right? He's actually making a distinction there, not the other group. And that brings up the whole question of, Fairness and equity and everyone getting an equal chance and all that kind of stuff. Now we might bring up Matthew 28, 19 and the mission to all nations and all of that. Soon the gospel will go out to everybody, but not on this day. That's not what he's doing right now. And this but here's the thing, this woman has a real need. I mean, she's desperate. Her daughter's suffering horribly. She's afflicted. And she's calling for him, and he's not even answering her. And he tells the disciples it's because she's not Jewish. I mean, come on, what would it take for him to solve her problem, right? It would be easy. He could just step outside the thing. He's already up in that area. But he doesn't say anything. He says that's not what he came for. So naturally, we think that's not fair. I mean, he's making distinctions. It's not, he's not woke, man. I mean, he's not politically correct, you know? And it gets much worse than that. As a modern, inclusive, compassionate American I'm almost ashamed to read the next verses, verse 25 and 26, but we have to do it because my job is to teach the Bible. She came and began to bow before him. Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now he's talking to her like she's a pet. The Jews had two variations on the word dog. One was like a street mongrel dog, and the other was like a household family dog. And this is the nicer version, but still, he's contrasting children with her as a dog, the family dog. I know some of you love your dogs more than people, but (laughs) most people aren't like that. But still, to represent her as a dog as opposed to one of the children, I mean... That's definitely go to the sensitivity training class, right? Uh, or the, the, the student tribunal at the university, right? I mean, they'd have him right up before that. And I, uh, I don't know, it's amazing what, he, what he's saying here. What makes her people dogs and not children? Well, it's idolatry. I mean, it's sin. It's pagan ignorance. And the fact that she has no, she has no covenantal relationship with God... That's that's the point. The Jews are children, not because they are virtuous, not because they are better than she is. They are children for the sake of promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's a really important thing to remember, really important. That's everything. There's no personal superiority of the Jews over this woman. There's no group superiority over this woman, their people versus her people. It's a matter of God's gracious choice that he makes in history about who he's gonna deal with and through. Period. That's what it's about. In fact, back up in Matthew, and I'll kind of show you how this works out. Matthew chapter three, verse seven, John the Baptist had some really important visitors in Matthew chapter three, verse seven. It says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, He said to them, this isn't really politically correct either. (laughs) You brood of vipers. That's worse than dog. (laughs) At least she's a pet. He's calling these guys poisonous snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he says something really important. Do not suppose... So what would a Pharisee or a Sadducee, a a religious leader in Israel, be supposing that he's going to tackle right here? Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. In other words, your lineage, your bloodline... You are a child of Abraham, and there's a covenantal relationship God has with you as Abraham's people, but you individually, that counts for nothing if you don't have a repentant heart towards God. So being born a Jew does not entitle anybody to Messiah's kingdom, and that's what he was proclaiming, the coming of the Messiah, right? But the kingdom is offered to them because they are his covenant people. It's theirs to accept or reject on the terms that God offers them, which is repentance and faith in Christ. Okay, another move forward, Matthew chapter 8. Here's the other guy with great faith. The first person mentioned that has great faith. It's a Roman centurion. It's an Italian. Probably. Could have been a centurion that was promoted from another culture, but he's a pagan. This is the only other man credited with great faith in the Gospels. Full on Gentile, right? Actually, he was a God-fearer, this man. He worshiped the living God, but he wasn't wasn't Jewish, and he wasn't a convert to Judaism. He never was circumcised. So notice the language here in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. Now, when Jesus heard this, his statement about, hey, you know what? You don't have to come with me to heal my servant. Just say the word, and it's done. I understand authority. You have authority. Just say it. And Jesus marveled When Jesus heard him say that, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. Into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, being a part of the covenantal people doesn't count for anything if there's no faith. But the people from the East and the West, all over the world, other peoples, they'll be in, sitting at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if they have faith. And this centurion had great faith. So, strangers are in the kingdom. The children, what he calls the children, because they're covenant people, might be out of the kingdom. So you gotta keep those things in mind too. So notice the description of the kingdom itself, reclining at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The kingdom belongs to them, not because they're virtuous, but because of God's gracious promise. God made promises to Abraham and the other patriarchs. So those who have the faith of the patriarchs are in the kingdom promised to Israel. Even strangers are welcome, but those who are sons and do not share the faith of the patriarchs are cast into outer darkness. That's what Christ says. So Israel is God's chosen nation based on his sovereign choice and no merit of their own. He even says in Deuteronomy, he says, do you think I chose you because you are a greater people than everybody else? He says, I just set my love on you. It's his purposes that are for that, not their greatness. The Old Testament, over and over again, however, does show that Israel will be the great nation of the earth in Messiah's kingdom. When Jesus comes to rule, and Taylor was talking about that in Sunday school today in um, Psalm chapter 2, God gives him rule over the entire earth. And here's a text we can use as an example. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 10 through 14 He's just describing the millennial kingdom when Christ comes back, what the world will be like. And he's talking to the Jews, and he says Isaiah says, Foreigners will build up your walls, and their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, and in my favor I have had compassion on you. Your gates will be open continually, they will not be closed day or night. That means they'll be safe. So that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations. And their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish. And the nations will be utterly ruined. Isaiah 60 verse 13. The glory of Lebanon. syro-phoenicians The glory of Lebanon will come to you. The juniper, the box tree, the cypress together. To beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I shall make the place of my feet Glorious the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you and all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. You know how the Jews are the most hated people on earth, I mean by far, and Israel is the most hated country on earth by far, even more than us. All those people that hate them, those people groups, saved people in the millennial, kingdom those who enter the kingdom, they'll be serving the Jews. That's how God's going to arrange it. That will be part of their um, repentance to serve them. But Christ is going to rule from Jerusalem and he's going to make that his capital and his people will be the premier people of the earth. That's the way it's going to be. And the other nations will serve them. So me, Irish, English, Hungarian, I got to serve the Jews. That's okay because that's the way God set it up. I'm happy to do that. So now the Bible teaches the Priority of Israel, then, in God's plan. That's what he's done since Abraham. Abraham was the first Jew, the proto-Jew, if you will. He chose Israel to work through in this world. He chose them to be the mediators of his word. Who wrote this book? Jews. He chose them to receive Jesus first because he made the kingdom promise to them. He chose them to spread the authoritative word of God in the New Testament as well. The apostles were Jewish as well as the Old Testament prophets. And they will be the premier nation, the center of the world when Jesus comes to reign. All of that's been promised to them. Why? Because God made these promises to this man Abraham when he called him. It's all there in the very first three verses of Genesis Chapter 12, he promised Abraham a great name, a specific land, which today is the land of Israel, although what he promised him is even bigger. National blessing and personal blessing. And then at the end of that little sequence of blessings God pours out on Abraham, he says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, how's that gonna happen? Because of his descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who does bless all the families of the earth. Just in this room, multiple families of the earth are represented that Christ is blessed. So Abraham becomes then the unique ancestor of God's great work in this world, ultimately manifesting itself in the coming of Christ. That's why Matthew's gospel, the very first verse of this gospel we're studying, the the, uh, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's what it says. He's the son of Abraham. Matthew 1, 1, the three most important men ever to have lived on earth, Abraham, David, and Jesus. The first two, Abraham and David, because of the promises made to them. They had the promises, and Jesus fulfills all of the promises made to them. So Gentiles like me, I mean, we can whine about it and say, well, why are the Jews chosen? Why are they so lucky? Why are they chosen in, in my English family or German family or Ethiopian family or Argentinian family or whatever, wherever we're from? Well, we weren't chosen. Well, it's not luck. And for one thing, it's brutally, it's brutally hard on Israel to be accountable to God. In fact, they're really the representative nation of the sins of the world, right? I mean, God called them and how did they do? really poorly. I mean, after the Joshua generation, it's downhill and it stays downhill forever. So, And they get judgments heaped on them, plus wonderful promises because at the end God's going to bless them because he promised to Abraham he would. So it's not that big of an advantage being Jewish. In fact, after the Holocaust, a lot of Jews, if you talk to them, they'll say, uh, well, we're the chosen people, but I wish God would choose somebody else because they are the most hated people in the world. So rather than think in terms of, like, fairness, we should rejoice in this, that God fulfills promises that he makes to sinners. He blessed the nation despite their unworthiness. Every time he blasts them, he tells them how wonderful it's gonna be someday, and he's gonna bless them every time. That's why Isaiah 60's there, or Isaiah 49, or Isaiah chapter nine, or Isaiah chapter 11. I mean, it's all there. God's gonna bless them. And that Jesus showed up and blessed the world 2,000 years after those promises were made to Abraham, that's just a a marvel to contemplate how God fulfills promises in Christ that were promises made long, long, long before. It's wonderful. So if you think about it, um, fairness is really not the thing to seek from God, ever, ever you know what fairness is, right? I mean, it's an appeal to justice. Do you want justice from God? Do you really want to plead? When you die, do you want to tell God, give me justice! (laughs) Measure me in the scales, weigh me, and give me what I deserve. Is that what you're going to (laughs) say? That ain't what I'm going to say. Give me what I deserve. Nothing more and nothing less. The door to hell is right there. (laughs) Don't pray that prayer. If we all get justice, if it's equal justice for all, we're all doomed. That's the truth of it. So let us seek from God mercy and grace on our knees. Abraham was called by grace. The Jews were called by grace. They were made children by a covenant of grace. And Jesus calls this Syrophoenician woman a dog, but by by the reckoning of divine justice, we're all dogs. Like that woman. And all dogs do not go to heaven. (laughs) Contrary to that cartoon. (laughs) Only dogs who believe go to heaven. (laughs) So if you wanna be politically correct, you're damning everyone. If you're saying it's gotta be equal for everyone, You're asking for justice, that's what we deserve. So we are all equal before God as sinners. That's the commonality we share with all of humanity. And equally deserving condemnation from God as sinners. So to ask for justice, it reveals a complete misunderstanding of our sin before God and why Jesus needed to go to the cross to bear that penalty for us. Because we don't deserve salvation from him. And God doesn't owe mercy. If, If he owed it to us, it's not mercy. And by its nature, mercy is not something God owes to anyone. And you know, God would not be the slightest bit less perfect at all if he offered mercy to nobody. If he offered mercy to nobody, he would be completely just and good and right. Completely. He would be not diminished in any way. If all we got was justice, he would be perfectly just. Absolutely right in all of his judgments. So Jesus doesn't owe this Gentile woman a blessing, not even a kind name for her people. Dog is just fine, because we're all dogs, really, before God's justice. The Jews were children by a covenant of mercy, that's all. And, and just being that labeled a child because of that doesn't even save them. As we said, they might be cast out while others are included in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mentioned John chapter four earlier. Do you remember the conversation Jesus had with the Samaritan woman? I want to read part of that for you. Listen, listen to their conversation. This is John four, verse 19. She was a worshiper. She had a, the Samaritans had a kind of a hybrid religion between paganism and, and Judaism. And it was sort of a mix, like happens all the time all over the world with Christianity. People blend it with their local religion. And that's what they they had. And they didn't worship at Jerusalem like the law commanded. They had their own mountain where they worshiped God, you know. And the woman said to him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Because he knew that she had held these relationships. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, it doesn't matter. We're all the same. No, he doesn't say that. He said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's out of the lips of Jesus. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. That's inclusive. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said... I who speak to you am he. What a moment that was. So Jesus tells her that her religion is wrong. (laughs) And Jerusalem is God's chosen place. And salvation is from the Jews. And all he means by that is that the covenant God made with Israel is the covenant you need to become a part of. You can't do it on some other thing. And when he discloses himself to her as the Messiah, as the source of all truth, that was a merciful act, which she didn't deserve, which none of us deserve. So what about this poor Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15? Well, Jesus tells her that he owes her nothing because she's a dog and not a child, not among the covenant people. And then what happens? Verse 25, she came and began to bow. I'm going to go back a little bit. She came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So she has an answer. She doesn't demand justice. She accepts her lack of standing as somebody outside the covenant. She accepts that Israel has a favored position before God. And she says, okay, I'm a dog. But even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. All I want is a crumb from you. You've got to love this woman. You've got to love her. In the midst of her agony over her daughter, we see this reverence for Christ, a respect for Israel, love for her child, humility, perseverance, and wit all at the same time. I mean, she's something. Most of all, though, what do you see? Faith. That's what you see most of all. And she knows Jesus has a solution for her, and she trusts him, she believes in him, she knows he's good and kind, even if he's not being that way to her by outward appearances. She persisted in asking and trusting when everything was against her, So she humbled herself, and she kept asking. And Jesus is really impressed. And I have to think the reason he didn't send her away and kept silent is because he wanted her to bring her to this depth of humility and to express this faith in a strong and full way. He knew. He knew what she was about. So she's become wiser. She's become more aware of herself more aware of the truth through this encounter, which is the natural result of people that come to Jesus in a humble faith, they become deeper and wiser. So he says, oh woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. So she received mercy and stretched her faith all at the same time. And that's what he brought out of her. So once again, we see The only other person Jesus credits with great faith and, you know, um, that Greek word mega, megas, that's what the word is, mega faith, that's what she's got. A Roman officer had it, an Italian, and this Syrophoenician woman had it, this Gentile, and a woman no less. (laughs) That's how a Jewish man would have thought of it in the ancient world. I totally get it, (laughs) So we're being led to see that God has a plan for these people outside of Abraham's bloodline. And it's manifested in the people Jesus commends, right? I mean, it's all right there. They are members of the families of the world that God promised would be blessed through Abraham. That was the last thing he said to Abraham in that covenant promise. In you, all the families of the world will be blessed. And here we're seeing them being blessed. So the wonder of the gospel is that dogs will be transformed into children by God's grace. And this will, they will be given a place at the table, an equal place at the table in Christ and through Christ and no, on no other basis. So Matthew includes these two people of great faith, the centurion and the seraphonician woman, in his gospel. And he does it for a reason. I mean, he's writing this gospel. Everybody knows Matthew's gospel is mainly aimed at Jews. You know, Luke's writing to Gentiles. Mark's probably writing to Romans. But Matthew's writing to the Jewish community Primarily. He quotes the Old Testament way more than the other Gospels do. But Matthew includes these two Gentiles, and he's the one that makes sure we hear the story that Jesus praised them for their great faith. He acknowledged that. That's quite shocking, actually, and kind of provoking for him to do that when he's writing to Jewish readers. I, I think I would have left that out. You know, this might bother them. You know what? Don't include this, Matthew. If I was standing there and I'd say, Matthew, don't include that story. Why unnecessarily offend, you know? There's my political correctness coming out. They might be triggered by that. Well, the reality is anybody with an open heart, a, a humble heart, is gonna see that and be humbled as a Jew that these Gentiles had greater faith. And they'll say, yes, our people are not where they should be. I'm not where I should be. And they would follow. Christ knows that. God knows that. That's why that's included. These two stories are included. You can't worry about people turning away in disgust by telling them the truth. You can't worry about that. Matthew didn't worry about that. You've got to be kind to people, but not worry about the offense that people might take to great truths. Let God convict their hearts. That's really the lesson there for why Matthew's including these stories to his Jewish readers. Just tell the truth. So we started off this morning talking about politically correct speech, but there's only one kind of correctness that really matters, right? Are you correct with God? That's all that matters. Are you correct with God? And to be correct with Him, to be right with Him, to have your standing before Him, you have to have your sin problem taken care of. And who takes care of that? Jesus does. That's why He went to the cross for our sins. You need to receive his mercy and you need to place your faith, just like this woman did, your trust in Christ as your true Lord and your all-sufficient Savior. You have to do that. No matter who you are. And Christ can make you God's child whether you're a dog or not. Feel like a dog? Well, he loves dogs and he loves to turn them into children. So wherever you are in your life, he's ready for you. And you can have a seat at Abraham's table in the kingdom. That's so cool. I'm going to close with the words of a former Pharisee, the Apostle Paul, a viper, saved by grace. It's from Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. I'm just going to read it and close with this. Galatians 3, 22, Paul says, The Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you, Who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Heirs according to the promise. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for your great salvation which extends to all people in all places, people of every kind, every culture, every condition in life, every level of sin and guilt. There's a place. If we just put our trust in the Savior you've provided for us. We thank you so much, and we give you our praise and glory for bringing us the truth. And we ask you to make our hearts humble and affirming to all of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.